Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Just use one mic this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. As you and I do that, permit me to prime the pump for us and remind us where we are here in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians is, as you have, I'm sure, slept since the last time I've preached out of Ephesians 5, and uh, a good reminder is always a good thing. We are reminded that we're in another section of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and so we are making our way through Uh, or we have made our way through his foundational discourse in the first three chapters. We, in the first three chapters, or in all of the uh, epistle, we are looking at the book in light of what can be uh, determined as its overarching theme of the exalted Christ. Paul, in his uh, letter, is presenting to us a Christ who sits on high and rules on high. In chapter 1, we went through it and saw that there was a heavenly witness to the exalted Christ, namely the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as it relates to their inseparable operations within salvation. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we looked at the earthly witness to the exalted Christ where Christ has given his church, that he has made a new man, breaking down uh, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and so uh, inaugurating a new covenant. And here in chapters 4 and 5, Paul turns our attention from doctrine to devotion and to the earthly reality of the exalted Christ, that as we are described as Christ's body, it is important for us to understand that as we live according Uh, to uh, the law of Christ and obedience to Christ and the love of Christ, that we make testimony to the earthly reality that there is an exalted Christ. Again, we uh, progress on through uh, this book. We see that Paul likens us not just to a body, but also a temple that we are to act accordingly as ones who are indwelt by the Spirit, one where God's special presence dwells. And so as this new creation, this new temple, this body is to act accordingly, to put away falsehoods and speak truth, to put away self-seeking anger, to no longer steal but instead work so that provision can be made for those in need, to refrain from speech and to that tears down and to seek to build one another up. Finally, put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and be kind to one another, being ready to forgive as we have been forgiven. And so here in chapter 5, the Spirit addresses the earthly reality of the exalted Christ through the lives of His children. In the first part of the chapter, Paul addresses general directions for the Christian life. Then in verse 21 through the first part of chapter 6, he turns more to, to more specific life situations that Christians will find themselves in. We address verses 3 through 5 of chapter 5, so we're still in that first half where he is giving us general direction for all Christians in our 
Christian life. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Let us petition the Lord for help this morning. O Lord, we ask your help this morning as we come before your word. We ask that you would use your appointed man to speak your truth according to the word of your truth that your people may be blessed. We ask you, Lord, that you would move in us to hear this word according to your will and be thankful in our hearts to you for it, that we may not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we look at the verses uh, 3 through 7 this morning, especially as it begins in verses 3 and 4 and, and following, we recognize that we address a topic this morning that is rampant in the world around us. Sexual immorality, impurity of all kinds, or uncleanness, covetedness, these things, filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting, These are things prized and praised in our society and in our culture. It's something not unique to the American culture or the Western culture. For as we read God's word here in Ephesians and in Paul's other epistles, we recognize that it was something that must have been a part of the Gentile culture, the Greek and Roman culture where Paul exhorts them to to not be named among these things, to not partake in these things, to actually expose these things. So we may take heart that as Christ worked in the church in its early stages, he will also work in us this morning and even in this age. We also recognize that we can go back even further as we will and see that Uh, The Israelites, as they went in to conquer Canaan, they were told to abstain from certain things that those who possess the land and those who live around the land all partake in. But I think one thing that we must protect ourselves from this morning is a sense of pharisaical mindset where we may come here this morning and say, Oh, Lord, thank you that we are not sinners like those outside these doors. We may come into this room and think that we have put away these things completely and may never need to worry about them. 
For that, we are helped along a little bit by surveys uh, that take place from time to time. One of those surveys is done by Ligonier Ministries. In 2014, they began surveying a little over 3,000 people on various religious questions. One of those statements was, sex outside of marriage is sin. In 2014, 52% of the people surveyed disagreed or were unsure as to the validity of this statement. 52%, over half of the people surveyed disagreed or were unsure with the statement that sex outside of marriage is sin. In 2016, there was an improvement to 51%. It should correspondingly be noted that in 2016, Another statement was added to the survey. That statement was, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. 56 agreed. 56% agreed or were unsure that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. In 2018, uh, our first statement improved again to 49%. With the corresponding, but the corresponding statement grew to 59%. In 2020, it held that 49%, it held at 49%, and the second statement actually had a precipitous improvement to 48%. Why do we bring up these numbers? We bring up these numbers to recognize that these were professing Christians. We don't know of what tradition they they professed or, or what churches they went. There wasn't any correspondent how many days a week you went to church, but other surveys hold that, that those that consistently went to church and prized church membership, these numbers greatly improved. And so we can be thankful that it seems that faithful gospel-preaching churches are teaching the people of the heinousness of sexual sin and uncleanness but we must recognize that we can't look away at these things as, as they relate to uh, protection from our own homes, protection from our church. For if we just take these at face value, half of all church-going people do not have a biblical sexual ethic. This survey didn't address other issues either, such as pornography use, other impure acts or thoughts, music and movies that portray immorality, undue delay of marriage, immodest dress or lust. The survey was a short survey. So we could probably assume that the numbers get worse as the act or the question moves away from act to word to watching to thought or desire. And so it's important for us to not shirk away from these things in the preaching of the word in the church community. We must not think that these are to be set aside for other times, that other issues are more pressing in upon us than this issue of holy living. Though, we, though I also recognize that this is a difficult issue for many of us. Many of us have fallen to such temptations. Many of us have 
lived in for a time or a season in impurity or covetedness, sexual immorality. Many of us have fallen into the muck and mire of this such that it took much prayer, much accountability, much effort to seek to be identified with Christ and not identified with this world. And so uh, hopefully with uh, some pastoral care this morning, I may address these things to our benefit. This morning we're going to look at our passage under three headings. The works of darkness, the wages of darkness, and the weapons against darkness. The analogy or the picture of darkness comes from the chapter later on in verse 8. It says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, in verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. In verse 13, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Consider also this letter is written to the church. We remind ourselves that every time that it's not written to the world. This is an exhortation, an admonition to saints in the Lord. If we go back to chapter 1, Paul addresses to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ. But immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And it is important for us to see, verse 8, for you were formerly darkness. That these sins don't easily, aren't easily laid aside. That though we experience much deliverance as Christians and we experience much, much deliverance as new creatures in Christ, there's oftentimes a lingering of our old self, the lingering of <clears throat> the old man in us. And so we must be reminded of these works of darkness so that we may clearly see them as they arise up in us so that we would not, as this passage says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. So that we would not be deceived by either ourselves or the world or the evil one that these things are anything short of an abomination or anything short of a... <clears throat> detestation of the Lord. They are sin against a holy and righteous God. The Spirit through Paul wrote similarly elsewhere in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you. We recognize that what's being addressed here in Ephesians 5 under immorality it comes from a word in the Greek, pornea. This word is associated with our word, pornography. This is not just uh, the act of, the consummation of desire, 
the consummation of thoughts and words in act, these are the very thoughts and words and desires themselves, for it goes on to say, or any impurity, our translation says greed, but the word there can also be translated covetedness. And I think associated with this is the filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting. For that which is praised in this world is often brought into our sphere and brought into the guard of uh, people through humor. Humor is a, a great way to introduce many per, much perverseness, much, much impurity, because we can just laugh it off as a funny joke, as, as something awkward displayed, awkwardly displayed. And yet inside us, it may, by uh, the work of the evil one, the desire of our old person, the system of this world, implant in us seeds of darkness, seeds of these things, which when they bear, much, when they bear fruit, find ourselves to be in dire situations. These works of darkness are just that. They are darkness. Here, the Spirit, I think, interprets the seventh commandment. For the seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. The ninth commandment is, uh, or the tenth commandment is, Thou shalt not covet. But this commandment, that thou shalt not commit adultery, here, I think the Spirit, through Paul, interprets it for us so that we may understand it in greater degree, as much as Christ did also in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, you have heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. But he says, if you look at a woman with lust, you have already done so in your heart. And so here, the Spirit warns us from such things that begin in the heart and in the mind, that enter in through our minds and hearts, through our eyes and ears, and so then give root and bear fruit and come out as immoral acts. I think the Spirit elsewhere interprets the seventh commandment. In Leviticus 18, if you want to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 18. This here found in the Old Covenant law of Moses that we find oftentimes in Moses' law or in the Old Covenant law that there is a reference to a general, general morality. Um, and I don't mean just in the uh, specific immorality that we're talking about, but immorality as a whole, a violation of the Ten Commandments. And so oftentimes when we read in uh, the Old Testament law and we see that they are to do this to set themselves apart because this is what the other nations were committing. We may recognize this as uh, a general exposition of God's moral law. It says here in verse chapter, one, or verse, chapter 18, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived. Nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. 
you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So we see a couched here in the Old Testament law just by way of recognition. We see the covenant of works. For what does it say? In verse 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. This a reference to the covenant of works. Do this and live. And so if it is a part of the covenant of works or if it's, a, uh, if it's an association with the covenant of works, then it is a covenant made with all creation and all men. And so what he goes on to see or goes on to explain as it relates to this ethic, we may understand it to be something of common morality. And the second table of the law, that which we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, which the sixth uh, command or the seventh commandment resides in, is not disassociated and is closely related to the first table of the law that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we find that in verse 21 of Leviticus 18 you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am. The Lord, here closely tied to this ethic, is idolatry. That tied to these unnatural, perverted acts is another perversion. A perversion of the worship of God such that the Israelites could be tempted from time to time or fall into the sin of time to time to offer their children up to Molech, to sacrifice them to this God. And then, as it relates to this idea of impurity and uncleanness, we see that related in verses 24 through 30. Do not defile yourselves. Defile. Do not make yourself unclean. Do not become impure. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these things, the nation which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and you shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out, should you defile it as it is spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, these persons who do so shall be cut off from the, among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord, your God. We may certainly decry the state of Western culture today. We may certainly recognize its decline from a once seemingly general morality that was promoted amongst both uh, people or amongst most people 
in our nation. But let us not be mistaken that there was some golden age of humanity whereby all this was put away, for we see here in the ancient times it was practiced amongst those who inhabited Canaan. It was practiced amongst one of the most advanced nations on earth, the Egyptian nation. And so we too must watch over our own hearts. We too must watch over these sins and protect ourselves, protect our family members from such sins, such lies that are believed as we will get into how to contend with these things. Let us consider what is implied here in the seventh commandment. A very big help to us is question 139 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Listen, the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incense, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriage, allowing and tolerating keeping of stews. Uh, this Hebraism here, or, or, or this idea of the keeping of stews is, was the bathhouses, and what took place at the bathhouses was basically nothing short of prostitution. So it's the keeping of prostitutes and the resorting to them. The entangling vows of single life undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husband than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either ourselves or others. The writers of this Catechism there at the end, you could see, have said, basically say there's many other things to be named in the imaginations and outworkings in the acts of men. But let those words be suffice for us this morning. These are the works of darkness. These are the things that are considered an abomination to the Lord. These are the things that defile These are the things that promote impurity and covenantness. And we can see this is not just consummated acts. These are thoughts of the mind and desires of the heart. These are leading us away from what is to be prized in the ethic of the Christian community. For again, as we recognize this, and here Paul sets them apart, sets these believers in Ephesus who are Greeks, who are Jews by ethnicity, barbarians and all the other things that are named, or all the other ethnicities that, that coagulate there in Ephesus as a port community. They were all these things by ethnicity. And yet Paul, or the Spirit through Paul, is saying you are a new humanity. You are a new community. 
You are to live not according to the under, darkened understanding. To the, you are not live a, no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding. But you are to live as new creatures in Christ. You are to put away these works of darkness. For we know that there are wages of these darkness. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetedness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The wages of darkness is death. The wages of darkness is to be outside the kingdom of Christ and God. The wages of darkness is the wrath of God which comes upon the sons of disobedience. And even in the temporary wages we see in Romans chapter 1 and here in Ephesians 4, is a debased mind, is to be given over in judgment by God, to walk in futility, to walk in darkened understanding. And so Paul says, oh, that none of these things would be named, would be even named among you. These things are not fitting for those who are in the community of faith. For the wages of darkness, those who practice such things, those who live according to these principles of immorality and impurity and covenantness, those who engage with joy and filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting, those have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Galatians 5.21, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In addition to the reasons stated in our passage, as it, as it says in verse 3, that, that it is not proper among saints, that it is not fitting, we can add at least two other reasons here that... that these acts are condemned. Sins of impurity go against the earliest covenant between two human beings, the marriage covenant. Though you may not be married here this morning, you still can violate a marriage covenant, whether it's a marriage covenant between you and Christ or, or a future marriage covenant that you may have in the future by engaging in these things, sins of impurity go against the earliest covenant between two human beings, the marriage covenant. In that covenant, a man is to leave his father and mother and become one flesh with his wife and his wife alone. This union is to be one of great joy and not shame. It is not to be defiled 
It is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be precursed by filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. And as such, impurity is a rejection of this great truth, and so it is also a rejection of the authority of the Creator to dispense gifts to His creatures according to His sovereign prerogative. If we look at our culture around us as an example, it's a culture that wants to deny the authority of a Creator. And so man recreates himself in his own image, or in the image of his liking, and so it becomes... In, in their idea, boundless, but in reality, they become slaves to their desires, slaves to their lusts, slaves to their impurity and covetedness. The wages of darkness is to not inherit the kingdom of God, is eternal punishment. The wages of darkness come from a rejection of the authority of the creator and so a rejection of the ordering of a creator in his creation we may look around us we may consider these things and consider the darkness in our own hearts this morning the darkness of our hearts this week and we may wonder what could stand against such darkness what could what could be such what could come up against such overwhelming flood of immorality and impurity the lord leaves us not hopeless the lord leaves us the lord walks with us and will never forsake us the weapons against this darkness here we find that he says that it, he, he asserts that these sins should be so universally absent from the body of believers that there should be no occasion to associate them with the church. The, way, the first weapon we have against this darkness is repentance. To turn from and correspondingly turn to God, to turn from our sin and correspondingly turn to Christ. Earlier in chapter 4, in verse 22, Paul exhorted them to that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God is be has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Our first weapon against this darkness is repentance. Our first weapon against this darkness is to recognize our fallenness, is to recognize our proclivity to sin in this way, both male and female to do so. Though it may come more subtly in the hearts and the minds of female, it still comes in the female mind. And, O oh men, we are assailed everywhere we look. So our first weapon against this darkness is repentance, to turn from this sin, to turn to Christ, to rely upon the Spirit, to renew our minds, 
to recognize that we have been given a new self, that this new self is cast in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Our second weapon against this darkness is found in our passage this morning and in its gratitude. And there be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. According to one commentator, thanksgiving is the proper response of gratitude to God's work of redemption and thus a recognition that he is the ultimate source of every blessing. We may not recognize it in the moment, but as we seek after these things, as we seek after these, this immorality, this impurity, this greed, this filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, we're seeking after something that we think we're going to receive blessing from. In our disordered minds, in the minds of our old self, we seek blessing from everything else but God, and so we seek, after, we seek blessing from these things. And we forget that the ultimate source of every blessing is God in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism is broken up into three parts. The first part is guilt, how great our sin and misery are. The second part is grace, how we are set free from all our sins and misery. And the third part is gratitude, how we are to thank God for such deliverance. We may not often always see our life as an act of thanksgiving to God, but it is how the Bible portrays the Christian life. For we add nothing to the righteousness that Christ has imputed to us in our good works. We merit no more of heaven and the kingdom by doing good things and putting away sexual morality and impurity and covetedness. But we may express our thanksgiving and our gratitude that God has delivered us from such things. Question 86 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. If you have not Put your faith in Christ this morning and you may not realize it, but you are seeking blessing from however you're living your life. Whatever you're seeking to receive from whatever work that you do, you're thinking there is blessing on the other end. There is good things for you if I just am able to do this or am I just able to express myself or live in such a way. But there are no benefits to those things. They are deceitful desires for the benefits we may receive that are only of good to us are found in Christ. And so may we as believers who have put our faith in Christ live according to that benefit and gratitude to that benefit. We also recognize that it's not just enough as we saw in repentance to turn from something, but we have to turn to something. 
One commentator says that silence is not the response to the sins of speech. The response is sanctification of the tongue, putting off foul talk or superficial jabber, and instead putting on grateful and encouraging words for building up. Here we may fight against this darkness by living a life of gratitude to our Savior. Finally, the weapon, and it's not as much of a weapon as it is an enabler, an enlivener, that which quickens us to life is the Holy Spirit against this darkness. What does Paul say to them? He says that it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This idea of saints is this idea of holy ones. The word there is very much associated with the word holy in Holy Spirit. And so we recognize that as Paul calls them saints, he's calling them holy ones. He's calling them those who have been made into a temple of the Holy Spirit. Those that have been set apart and anointed for these works. You may have recognized that as we read in 1 Corinthians 6, you may have rightfully so gotten ahead of me in verse 11. We read of all those acts and all those people, those that practice such things that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what does it say in verse 11? Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You were made saints. We must remind ourselves this, brothers and sisters, when we are tempted to such thoughts, to such desires, to such actions. We recognize that we would take heed as he says, he continues on in verses 18. He says, flee immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Recognize that we would take heed of the command of the angels to Lot. To Lot and his family, that they would flee and do not look back. That we would flee this immorality, these immoral thoughts and deeds, these impure desires. We would flee covetousness, flee filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting. Flee idolatry in these things and not look back. Not be like Lot's wife and cast an eye back to what was. Because as a result, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you are a temple of the living God. Just in the glory that indwelt that first tabernacle in the desert, that which was constructed against or according to the plans in heaven, according to the things of heaven, 
that which was a type of the one who would come and have the spirit without measure and then who has now given us his spirit that we would be little tabernacles. That we too would in the same way possess the glory of God so that those who come in contact with us would be like Moses whose face shine, who, whose face shone with the glory of God. Recognizing that just as that temple was not, was maybe immediately, but not ultimately the Israelites. It was a temple of God. So we too are not our own. We are faced with these works of darkness. We recognize they are in this world. We recognize they are promoted by the system of this world and they are pushed by the evil one himself. We also must recognize that these works of darkness may be in ourselves that they might so easily entangle us. And so that we'd be reminded that these works of darkness provide no blessing. They provide nothing that they promise. They are deceitful, and so we may fight against them with repentance and gratitude and in the Holy Spirit. That the Lord may receive glory now in this age and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for though we fall grievously to these sins, sometimes just in passing. We give you thanks that even though we fall, we are held by a loving Savior. We are kept in his loving embrace and we are given his spirit not a spirit of complacency, but a spirit of hope, a spirit of power, that we may put away these things, that you may not be named among us. Oh Lord, that we would live in gratitude to you for your glory alone. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.